Hello, and welcome to my podcast, Sex, Love, and Addiction. This show was created to provide accurate expert information and support for those seeking insight into the painful realities of cheating and infidelity, sex and porn addiction, as well as the relationship between chronic drug abuse and paired sexual behavior, commonly known as chemsex. I'm your host, Dr. Rob Weiss, a licensed therapist, addiction specialist, sexologist, clinical educator, and author of 10 books on intimacy, addiction, sexuality, and relationship health. This podcast is a forum for discussing sex, love, and addiction in frank, fact-based, informative ways. My primary goal is to bring you clear advice, opinions, and feedback from some of the world's most renowned experts in human sexuality, trauma, addiction, mental health, and relationship intimacy. This show is sponsored by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs, which are also dedicated to providing expert-focused, highly specialized residential treatment for men struggling with sex, porn, and related addictions. You can learn more about Seeking Integrity and my work there at www.seekingintegrity.com. Now let's get started. Hey everybody, welcome. I'm so glad to have you here today. And one of my favorite things to do on the show is bring someone back who's been here before. And you got to know that if they're coming back, that they have something really special and meaningful to offer to us. And one of the people that we've had on the show who I think has a lot to offer to us on a second round is Dr. Candace Christensen. If you don't remember Candace, she runs a treatment center in Utah called Namaste the Center for Healing. And um, she is just an amazing person. She's a certified sex education therapist. She's an EMDR trauma expert. She's trained with, with the Carnes folks. She's trained with Carol Forgosh. She's trained at the Gottman Institute. Um, I don't. I think Candace is what I would define as one of those therapists who never wants to stop learning. And they never find the place where they just can settle in and say, okay, I know enough. And yeah, that's the kind of person we want to have on the show. Uh, Candace has a couple of webinars, The Art of Ecstasy, From Sexual Disconnect to Bliss. She's also the author of Mastering the Trauma Wound, a book about understanding a therapist's understanding how to work with trauma. So Candace also um, is a friend and a colleague, and I just really respect her professional work. Um, welcome, Candace. Hi, Rob. It's so great to be back. And I just want everyone to know that I've actually trained with you too, going through my training, and that you are also a dear friend and a mentor to me. And I just love your work and it, you are an integral part of what we do here in Utah. So I just want to acknowledge you too. Thank you. Well, thanks. I know you're a pro-dependence fan and that's what I'm all over at the moment. So thank you. You know, Candace and I were talking about what we thought would be useful for you guys to hear. And I think I hear, I get a lot of questions. We, we both get a lot of questions about what underlies the intimacy disorder that is sex addiction, compulsive sexuality, and even for some people, sexual avoidance. Some people call it sexual anorexia, not being sexual, not being intimate, avoiding all of that. So, and I want to, I want to just say, and I'll say it before I, I invite Candace to join in again, is that whenever we are stuck being unable to deeply connect with others, something's not right because human beings are built to connect. We are built to be in relationship, to be supporting relationships, to be turning to relationships. This is how we thrive is in community, in relationship. And so when people, for whatever reasons, either psychological reasons or biological reasons, struggle with the ability to connect, they're too shy, they have trauma, they have emotional issues that keep them from feeling comfortable or 
keep them from feeling the deep connection that you can have with other people. That leaves them empty. Uh, there's a guy named Gabor Mate who talks, who wrote a book called "The In the Realm of Hungry Ghosts," and I, I love that term because it makes me think of all of us who wander around the earth, wanting and longing for connection and never finding it. And so many of those people end up becoming addicts because if you can't depend on people, which is what we're here to do, then many of us need or find ourselves turning to substances and behaviors just to feel okay, at least for a little while until we don't, and then we turn back to it again. So Candace, let's talk about this. What, what are you thinking about what I just said? And what are your reflections on your population? Well, it's huge what you just said about lack of connection. And I think of attachment, you know, we know with sex and porn addiction, especially it's an attachment based disorder. And so people don't realize that a lot of people will say, oh, it's a choice. You know, you're looking at porn because you choose that without realizing that a lot of people grow up in homes where they do experience a lot of shame. They feel very disconnected from their primary caregivers. They don't know how to self-soothe or regulate. And so they learn very early on ways to escape, ways to escape and ways to feel connected, if you will, whether it's to their body or to soothe, you know, emotionally. Um, So I agree with you 100%. You know, it's funny, Candice, because sometimes those ways that people who don't connect or who struggle to connect can't connect, what they're, sometimes what they do looks very odd. Like, you know, I've worked with kids who had Asperger's, for example, I remember, and, you know, they would be in a room banging their head against the wall. And I can think of, other people I know who will, will cut on themselves, you know, to relieve pain when we know that the most, most meaningful and supportive and long-term way to heal your pain is to connect with other people. But these people can't or don't know how or are too frightened to. What do you see in these folks, Candace? Well, you know, we do. So we offer, we have a program here where we treat men who are on the autism spectrum and uh, we are definitely open to treating women, but I think women with autism definitely go under the radar more than men. And so what we're seeing with men on the spectrum, and I've started to wonder about this too, is there's that self-stimming behavior that folks on the spectrum will do where they'll self-stimulate. Like you said, children will headbang. They might like, you know, flap their hands. But adults, what I see, we have a lot of folks that are on the spectrum that look at porn and it, even that they might look at porn or they might say, you know, I feel addicted to porn, or we might say through a thorough evaluation, you are addicted to pornography. So even that's a spectrum for folks who have autism, but I really think that's their way to feel alive. Well, feel alive, but also if they're overwhelmed, it's a way to self-stimulate so they calm down. I think they can become hyper-focused on what they're seeing online. I think masturbation uh, along with looking at pornography can be a way that they self-stimulate. So what's interesting about self-stimulation when we're talking about the autism spectrum is if you take out self-stimming, you're going to have to replace it with something. And so we talk a lot about, about that in group. Hey, if we're going to have you not look at pornography and not masturbate to pornography, we've got to find another way for you to self-stim, if you will. Now, some folks listening to me who are also in the field of, of evaluating and treating autism might want to argue with me about you know this is self-stimming. And I'm not saying that looking at pornography or being addicted to porn for folks on the spectrum is solely a form of self-stimulation. I'm just theorizing that because that's what I'm seeing a lot of. 
Let, let's slow down for just a second, Candice, because I think that you know your smarts lead to areas where people may not be fully filled in on how sort of what is the deal. So let me let me ask a couple of questions about this because I don't I don't know a lot about it. So it's really helpful for me. If someone is so, when you talk about someone being on the spectrum or having Aspergers, I think of someone who's sort of like developmentally disabled. I think of someone who's really can't work, doesn't have relationships, probably has to live in some kind of home. You know, I've seen the worst of the worst, the kids who are, you know, the headbangers and just completely disabled. So, you know, I think most people think of that when they think about Asperger's. And yet you talk about, you use the word high functioning. And that implies to me that there are people with Asperger's who are walking around the world in relationships, in marriages, in jobs. They may not even know they have this or their partners may not. There just may be some symptoms or things that are going on that no one seems to understand. And, and in that way, I think you're saying for some people, the porn, and I think what I would add gaming online and maybe gambling, all of these things can serve a brain function for these people who require stimulation to calm down and feel contained. But what do they look like in the world on a day-to-day basis? How would I know I was married to someone who is on the spectrum? Because I just thought he was a little cold and you know, never said, I'm sorry. <laughs> well, here's the beauty of saying spectrum. We know with folks who are high-functioning autistic, that they were diagnosed as children because they had a language deficit that was clearly observed in school or by their parents or by a spe- speech pathologist. And what do you mean? What do you mean by a language deficit? I, I don't even understand that. Yeah. So whether they didn't talk, you know, if if a child starts to talk and mumble, and you know, as an infant at a certain age, they were quiet. Perhaps they had an auditory processing deficit where they couldn't really process what was going on. So it was noticed by the teacher in preschool, or they had a speech impediment where a speech impediment isn't going to say, you know, determine someone having autism, they could have a speech impediment. But you know, there's other things. So high functioning autism will be diagnosed often when a child is young, because there's clear language and communication deficits. Okay, now let let me stop you for a second, because I'm thinking about the guy who's 50 or 45 or 40. And I don't know that 50, that 35 years ago, people were being diagnosed with Asperger's like, like someone who's 17 or 22 now would be. So what I'm really, I'm really kind of being a little tricky here, Candace. I'm saying to somebody out there who, you know, they're thinking their husband or their spouse or themselves that they might have something, something's not, not right. They just don't feel right in the way they communicate, the way they relate. But but, you know, maybe it's trauma. Everybody's talking about trauma. How would they know if it might be that they are high-functioning Asperger's if they never had that, didn't see that before? So here's the difference. It's high-functioning autism or Asperger's. So someone with Asperger's is the typically diagnosed as an adult because as a kid, they got by. They didn't have a language deficit. How would someone be diagnosed as an adult? What would be the symptoms that would lead them to say, maybe I should find out if this is something I have? Okay. So, um, socially awkward. So that, but a lot of people, now I'm going to, I'm going to push this. We're going to go down into a deep dive here. Let's do. So there are people who don't like, lots of people don't like talking at parties, you know, have difficulty making friends in social situations. That doesn't necessarily mean they have Asperger's. So this is more global. I think you're saying like, can you say what that means? So, so socially awkward in the sense of, um, doesn't know how to start a conversation, continue a conversation, or they they talk without understanding that it's reciprocal when you're having a conversation. They're also very literal. So you might say something and they'll take it very literally. They don't understand social and often sexual cues. Does that mean that they're not intelligent? 
okay, mo- well, so folks on the spectrum are usually very intelligent. That's a strength. Very, very intelligent. Some have, women especially, will often have our feelers. They feel a lot. So, so that stereotype of folks on the spectrum being lacking empathy is not necessarily true. But what happens is folks on the spectrum may not know how to show empathy. So for instance, they present more as egocentric, even though it's not narcissistic. Or maybe a little, ar- a little arrogant. Yes. But a therapist, mm-hmm. for instance, if a therapist is not sure, they might say, well, my client comes across as arrogant. They seem like they're flippant. They don't care. When in reality, if you look at them and they, you know, they either have poor eye contact or they stare at you, they'll often have tics. So their eyes might twitch or flutter. We see that a lot. You know, they might have to tap on something because they're anxious. You're looking for more than that. The police with folks that end up legally involved might say, oh, they're disrespectful. Oh, they just admitted it. No, they're just honest to a fault. Someone on the spectrum is honest to a fault. They're very literal. They're very blunt. They might come across as a know-it-all, but they're, they're spectrum. And I say it, I, I chuckle a little bit out of compassion, but also love. Like, yes, we're not, ju- we're not judging anybody here. No, I love, I love working with folks on the spectrum. It's truly my favorite population because they actually have so many strengths. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, someone gets by through socially camouflaging. And so when you say, how would I know if my spouse is on the spectrum? Your spouse who's listening, <laughs> if you're listening to me and you can see like, wow, their logic does is very confusing. We call it autistic logic. Their logic makes sense to, to them, but it doesn't mean wow, you know, they seem to to either talk on and on and on and on and on. I can't get a word in edgewise or they don't say anything or they don't know how to stop a conversation or they're just awkward. So let me, let me just say, so what you're saying is that they may have no, ver- no problems with verbal ability, but it's in the relationship. It's in noticing, oh, you, oh, I need to stop talking now and listen to you, or I need to say something because you stopped and now it's my turn. Yes. It's those kinds of simple cues that they may miss. Yes. And so, but they may jump in, oh, but then there may be a silence and they're thinking, oh, I did something wrong and they'll jump in. And then there's, then it's a little awkward and a little odd. Yes. And you notice it. I mean, this is, these are folks that I'm sure Rob, you actually can think of, oh, I wonder if so-and-so, you know, I think about this client or this friend. No, I, I, I have a friend who's married to someone who I'm certain, yeah. you know, is on the spectrum and she will say things like, you know, he just doesn't doesn't know how to anticipate what I'm feeling. You know, we're always arguing about things that are pretty basic. He doesn't seem to understand how I feel when, you know, someone passed away or just simple things that would make sense don't seem to make sense to him. And I get so angry at him. Yep. Then, and, he, and I hear things like people will, they will like uh, enter the like hours of masturbation or gaming and then they'll just kind of leave it there. I don't know if it's like an ADD thing, but they'll just like, they don't really think about how it might affect someone else or when they find it, how they'll feel or yeah. Well, and thinking errors are very different for someone on the spectrum. They'll have faulty thinking, you know, but the thinking errors, like for instance, their intention for doing something is very different than a neurotypical person. So, you know, when, when I do court cases and I'm, you know, evaluating someone on the spectrum, yeah, they might lack empathy, but it's not because they don't have it. They just don't know how to demonstrate it. Whereas an antisocial, someone who has, is antisocial or a sociopath they know they're hurting somebody. They just don't care. But someone on the spectrum isn't thinking, oh, I'm hurting somebody. They're not even there. I mean, they're in the moment. So that's another symptom is in the moment thinking. 
They don't think about future. They don't think about the past. They get online and they go, oh, it's online. It must be legal. And I'm not saying that disrespectfully. That's, I mean, literally thinking, well, if it's online, it must be okay. But you're also talking about the same person who might run a business. Yes. um, Have a family. Uh Be a millionaire. um, Go on vacations, spend time with their kids and look. Yeah. If they're just a little awkward or a little different or a little shy or a little obsessive. So I can imagine because I went to graduate school and when they explained every disease that you could have in mental illness, I thought, oh, I have that one. Oh, I have that one. It's called graduate school disease. But imagine anybody who's listening is thinking, oh, well, I'm a little awkward. My husband's a little, maybe they have a, you know, how do you, what would be a next step that someone might take? Would you go online and gather information or is that going to make it graduate school disease worse? (laughs) So that would make graduate school disease worse because one of the things I just evaluated a gentleman and I was ruling out autism and he, you know, he has more of a learning disability. And what people don't realize with a learning disability is there can be symptoms that look similar to someone on the spectrum, but they're, but he's not on the spectrum. And so a thorough evaluation by an expert who knows what to look for is very important. And then I also, even if the person's an adult, I actually interview the parents and, and often mom, because they can give me collateral information so that I can verify and understand. And then we add on top of that specific specific assessments, testing measures that we do to make sure that it's accurate. Hey there. I sure hope you're enjoying this sex, love, and addiction podcast. Before we continue, I'd like to remind you that if you or someone you know or love needs treatment for sex addiction, porn addiction, or co-occurring drug problems, Seeking Integrity can help. For more information, please visit our website at www.seekingintegrity.com. That's seekingintegrity.com or call us at 747-234-4325. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm listening to this and I'm thinking that, so I have, a, my husband has ADD, attention deficit disorder. And so there are times when, you know, he'll miss what I'm saying, miss cues, he'll make dinner, but for, then he'll get distracted by something and then everything will just be lying there. He's left the room and there's the dishes and everything. You know, It's not the same, but how would you sort of differentiate someone who's a little bit, I don't know, a little bit ADD, you know, misses cues, forgets, you know, just that kind of uh, is impulsive from a spectrum disorder? So if you think about it, does he respond to social cues with you? Does he know sexual codes of conduct? You know, does he understand on a more abstract level way of thinking? Right. Because someone in our groups, for instance, these are grown men who are very intelligent. They're very, very bright, but socially they struggle. And so what I hear you saying about your spouse is, yeah, he might be forgetful, but this is a general issue. Like this is global. Absolutely. It's generalized across settings where socially you'd be like, okay, I'm frustrated because you don't demonstrate. You can't demonstrate empathy to me. I'm sitting here saying I'm bleeding on the floor and you're worried that you can't start your video game. So it's more than just missing cues. It's more than just skipping over things or being impulsive. You would still be being impulsive in a a way that people could understand. Whereas if you had Asperger's, you might be impulsive in a way that people would say, why are you doing that? Well, it's in the, that's in the moment thinking. Another thing with folks on the spectrum, they'll also have sensory deficits. So we keep the lights, like the, the ceiling lights, we keep the fluorescent lights off in our room because folks get overstimulated. We, you know, we have to have like soft lighting. There has to be uh, quiet in the room because too much noise can actually, some of our guys will just stand up and, and literally go, ah, and then they leave. 
I mean, they'll leave the room. So it's too much stimulation. Too much stimulation. Uh-huh. So that's interesting because someone with ADD will want to, like my husband will turn on the computer, turn on the TV, turn on the dishwasher, you know, and all of that stimulation actually makes it easier for him to focus. Yes. But that's very different for someone who's on the spectrum. Yeah. Someone on the spectrum, it can be too much. And so that can be overwhelming. So we have a gentleman who's just like, can you make sure the lighting is low today? Or, you know, I'm, can, can I actually use the EMDR tappers. I bring the tappers into group. We don't know what a tapper is, but I'm assuming it's some kind of activity, a therapeutic activity. Yeah. It's like, so that he can like, whether you have like a squishy balls that he can squish bilateral stimulation, you know, where left hand, right hand is squeezing a ball. It's similar to that, but it's a machine that just does a little bit of a gentle buzz. And so he can feel the buzz in his left hand, then right. That bilateral stimulation that's slow actually calms him down. So he can. Soothing. Yes. Soothing. It's soothing. And so, so for instance, that would be an example of self-stimming that I've, I've implemented in the room that's calming to him because he feels overstimulated. I want to say to everybody why we're talking about this. It's not unusual for people who have sexual problems, whether they're addiction or other or disconnection, or even all the way to offending, which we're really not going to talk about today, but that aren't just bad people, aren't necessarily narcissistic. It's not a personality-based thing or even that they had some kind of profound trauma. There are people who have emotional mental disorders that they seem to have been born with, most likely have been, like Asperger's, like ADD, like OCD, that can mimic or cause someone to act out sexually. And someone will walk into my office or Candace's office and say, I'm a sex addict. I did this and this and this and this, and my wife's really angry, blah, 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 just like everybody else does. But if you are looking carefully and you're listening carefully, you begin to realize that, you know what, I think this person is bipolar and maybe they're a little bit manic right now and that's why they're sexual acting out. Or maybe they have ADD, which is about a 20%, 20% co-occurring with sex addiction, or maybe they're on the spectrum. And of course, I hope everybody who's listening understands that, you know, no matter how much trauma work you do, no matter how many 12-step meetings you go to, no matter how many times you write out a recovery plan, it's not going to work for you if you have an underlying emotional illness that needs to be addressed. And that's what Candace and I are wanting to talk about is how do people end up in our offices and things are missed that actually may be the key to the problem? Well, and I, I appreciate you saying that because I think a lot of times therapists have in their mind what, you know, especially in our field with working with sex and porn addicts, oh, this is... Or, or any kind of addict. They came in my office and they're using, therefore the problem is... Exactly. This is the profile, right? This is the profile of this person. And so what you and I are saying is we've got to look at, it's more than a mood disorder. It's more than a personality disorder. It could be trauma. It could be bipolar. If they're bipolar, it doesn't mean they have sex addiction necessarily. It means they're in a manic phase, right? And so, but I think people just automatically jump the gun. It could be autism spectrum. It could be, uh, like you said, trauma being replicated. We see that with so many men and women where they replicate what happened to them as a child. Unconsciously. Unconsciously. And it can be non-sexual trauma that they replicate sexually. And so, so yeah, it's it's not black and white. And I want to point out, and I think part of what Candace and I are saying here is this is the importance of getting a really good therapist who is licensed, 
who, you know, if I were going into therapy today and someone I had never met was, and I said, you know, I have this problem with sex, I would expect them to do a thorough and complete evaluation of my mental health, physical health, and my history. And if you walk into a therapist who just says, okay, let's jump in and talk about all this and get into the work, you're not working with the right person. Because those of us who are professionals who really understand mental health, who are licensed, and I don't have anything against coaches or all those folks who do wonderful addiction work, but if something is not healing, if it's not getting better, you know, if I have a cut on my hand and it's not getting better and I'm doing all the, you know, I've got a Band-Aid on there, I've got some, some bacteria stuff on there, my cut is not getting better, I have to go to a higher level professional. And so I would say to you guys, you know, if you're seeing a coach, a clergy, you know, someone who's been really supportive, but the struggle is still there. Rather than saying I'm a bad person or maybe my husband doesn't love me because he's not getting better, go make sure you get that higher level evaluation to make sure that there isn't some underlying issue like profound anxiety or obsessive compulsive disorder or some high level spectrum issue that is driving the sexual problem and will continue to drive it no matter how sincere he or she may be about how they want to change their behavior. They can't help it. Well, and people, people, you can stop the behavior. We know how to manage someone's behavior. We have the tools. I mean, we use the task-based approach, so on and so forth. But when a client says to me, okay, I've been here three months and I've stopped acting out sexually, I'm done. Okay, you're going to be back. So we may as well go deeper now, take a deep dive and figure out why and how you got here. And that's what you're saying. It's like, we, it's, it's so much more than stopping the addiction. We have to figure out why you started and we have to heal that wound. And I think, you know, for those of you who never make it to a therapist and only end up in a 12-step program or only feel like you're going to your pastor or whatever resources you have to you, you know, God bless you for doing the work that you can do and getting the help. I mean, most people don't do anything, but we are saying that even if it means a six-month wait with some county mental health facility, get yourself on the list. Because that pill, that particular form of counseling, that new way of looking at yourself or that way of looking at your spouse, where you can understand they have the kind of problem that really needs a particular kind of help, that kind of empathy and the right support can make all the difference. And believe me, mental health problems are not an excuse. (laughs) If we didn't want to have them, we wouldn't have them. And so many people walk around in the world walking, talking, chewing gum, working and having families who are also mentally ill and they don't know it. They don't understand why they're not functioning as well or why they're acting out in certain ways. And they end up just hating themselves or losing family or losing loved ones when the problem is something that's beyond their ability to fix. And by the way, there are plenty of addicts who don't have problems that are beyond their ability to fix. And if they just poured themselves into the work, they would get better. But knowing the difference is everything. So Candace, you have spent, because it is really your area of expertise, you've spent some time talking about spectrum disorders and high-functioning Asperger's. And I think we do have, I don't know, one in 10, one in 15 of the people who walk into our office with a sexual problem probably need to look at this. But let's list the other things. So we mentioned bipolar disorder. When someone's manic, they that means they may overspend, stay up all night, act really crazy, get really not sleep. It's kind of like they're on speed. And one of the things they do is they may often be hypersexual, have a lot, a lot of sex. And that's a part of their just wanting a lot of everything. But when they're stable on medication and that bipolar disorder is put into remission, they often stop all of the crazy acting out in every direction. That means they're not a sex addict. It means they have a mental health issue. And when it was dealt with, the sexual behavior stopped. What are some other ones, Candace? other diagnoses where you see people showing up with sexual problems or compulsive sexual behavior? 
Well, it's interesting, OCD and OCPD, so obsessive compulsive disorder and obsessive compulsive personality disorder, we'll see that there's a compulsion and sometimes they'll get into a compulsion where they, you know, have to be looking and collecting pornography. Or masturbating. Or masturbating, yes. It becomes very, very compulsive. And so we look at that, we treat that, and and that's one that I think is misunderstood clinically, even by professionals that don't understand that that's actually mental illness. So you're talking about the same people who might wash their hands because they're afraid of bacteria, check the stove, that kind of obsessive, I've got to do this or else. Only for them, their got to do this is I've got to look at this porn. I've got to masturbate in a certain way. I've got to collect these many images and put them in these kinds of folders and make sure there's 14 of these images in that folder and 27 in this folder. And otherwise, it's the same kind of obsessive, which is not really addiction. It's more of a mental health issue. And it's a different type of treatment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so folks, I, I, you know, one of the things that goes on in our field, and I, and if there are any therapists listening, or especially new therapists, I really want you to hear this: is that for many, many, many years, and I think Candace would agree with me, I've run into so many therapists who say, "Oh, I just hate diagnoses. I hate the DSM. I hate the DSM too, but for different reasons." And what I really think it's important for everybody to understand is that. Just like in medical health, where if someone has a certain kind of infection, everyone who works at the hospital needs to know how to treat that infection and what it is. Or if certain has a, someone has a certain kind of cancer, everyone who's working with that patient needs to know what that cancer is and how you work with it. It has a certain name, it has a certain diagnosis, it has a certain treatment plan. It's the same with mental health. It is not a judgment for me to say someone is bipolar. It's not a judgment on their character. If I say somebody has Asperger's, it's an observation that they have a a medical issue that is related to how they're acting in the world and it needs to be treated. We need to have a common language in the field of mental health. If we don't have a common language, then we have no way of talking to each other about the problems. Diagnoses aren't used to judge people. They're used to help us have a common understanding of how to help people. And I think that's really important because people I've noticed can be very judgmental of this idea of, well, you're putting people in boxes. You're just giving people a bunch of labels, you know, and in in a way, I guess we are, but, you know, would you say that if I say everyone who's had a heart attack looks like this, would you say I'm putting people with a heart attack in a box? Probably not. So why do we do that with mental illness? And I think it has something to do with that we stigmatize people with addictions and mental illness. And so when you and I come along, we say, well, this might be this or that, it sounds like we're further stigmatizing them. I wonder, Candace, you know, if you have clients who really resent the diagnosis that they get. Well, I was just thinking about that. And I will say every person who we've evaluated and diagnosed with autism spectrum, for instance, among other things says, thank you. I'm so relieved. I knew, like I always knew. Now I feel like I finally can get the accurate help I need. Wow. They're not resentful. Wow. (laughs) They appreciate it. Is there a national organization or something online that you're aware of, and there you may not be, um, where people can get more information about spectrum disorders? Autism Speaks would be one. There's a lot. You can Google diagnosing autism, but there's Autism Speaks, which is really great. And could someone find someone to do an evaluation or a therapist in that way? Or maybe they could just reach out to you and you can make a recommendation. People can go to our website, um, namasteadvice.com, or you can email me directly, Candice at namasteadvice.com. People can also call our office. I can give the phone number. Yeah, 801-272-3500. And I'm happy to offer you resources in your state. 
Candace has been an amazing, I often will send her a friend or a colleague who needs some direction. And she's just been incredibly generous with her time as she is being with us right now. And Candace, thank you for bringing up this topic because I think it's very shameful. Yeah. I think it's very humiliating and embarrassing. Yeah. And it doesn't need to be. And, you know, who wants to be the person who has this problem? And yet in adults who are functioning, it can be very manageable and very workable. And again, the message I'm giving to everyone is you may have a sex problem. You may have an intimacy problem. You may have a relationship problem. And it may be something that in good therapy and with good recovery work will get resolved. But if you have been struggling for years, if you have found yourself going to meetings, going to therapists, and you're just not getting anywhere, before you say, I'm hopeless, I'm never going to get better, or before you say, I'm going to leave that woman or man and I'm taking the kids, I think it's really important to be absolutely certain what is going on with them, that they have had the proper opportunity to get the healing that they need and the, and the diagnosis they need, and then you can make your decisions. Because it, I would say at least two out of five people who walk into my office have profound depression or anxiety or obsessive compulsive disorder or ADD or OCD, or we have this thing called dual diagnosis or co-occurring diagnoses where someone has an addiction, but it's really the leading edge of an underlying issue that is quite identifiable and treatable. And that's what we brought to you today. So thanks for joining us here at Sex, Love, and Addiction. Thank you, Dr. Christensen. I do love you and adore you. Thanks, Candace. Thank you. Hi, this is Dr. Rob again. Thank you for joining us today. If this show has inspired you to seek further information for yourself or someone you love, I encourage you to visit our treatment center website, which is www.seekingintegrity.com. There you'll find some useful information about the residential treatment we provide, which I think is some of the best, most useful, short-term effective intensive care you can find for sexual addiction and compulsivity, as well as combined drug sex or chem sex problems. On SeekingIntegrity.com, you can find some useful advice and direction for healing. And don't forget, if you want to write me about this podcast or reach any of my guests, please write me at Rob at SeekingIntegrity.com. I really look forward to our next time together. Take good care.